Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to explore another question. You know, over recent weeks, I've been getting numerous questions that are related to Bible study, how to interpret sacred scripture. And in one question, I got an inquiry about what separates one gospel from another. In particular, what separates the Gospel of Matthew from the Gospel of John? And I thought that to be a pretty provoking question. And so this evening, what I want to do is set out to respond to that question by exploring in principle some of the themes that you find in Matthew, and then also some of the themes you find in the Gospel of John, so as to better understand maybe not only how to interpret the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John, but where you might find the distinctions, how they are different. Part of the question was, you know, what makes the synoptic gospel different from the gospel of John? The gospel of John is altogether different, right? And to the why, well, that is some of what we are going to get into tonight. Now, that being said, let us just kind of jump right in. Uh, What we have here is the kingdom of heaven. So the content of Matthew's gospel has as its central theme the kingdom of heaven. How do we know that? Well, (laughs) the word, the phrase, rather, kingdom of heaven appears 30 times, 30 times throughout the book, and really sounds forth in the preaching of our Lord John the Baptist and the 12 apostles. So the kingdom of heaven is paramount in the gospel of Matthew. Now, what we are to understand is that the kingdom is not reducible to a purely spiritual or otherworldly realm, nor is it exclusively linked with the future blessings of eternal life. Rather, what Matthew wants us to see is that it is a claim that God the Father is now working through the Messiah to establish His will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, within the text of the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is a theme that really branches out into several directions, starting, of course, with Christ as its center. So what are these branches? Well, the first for Matthew, what what he is wanting us to see is that the kingdom of heaven is ethical. Ethical in the sense that it calls for a human response to Jesus. Right in chapter 4, verse 17, it summons hearers to repentance. How do we respond to Christ? right? This really lies at the heart of this gospel. What did Jesus say? Who do they say that I am? The apostles, oh, John the Baptist, Elijah. And then what question does he pose? All right, I've asked you who they say I am, but who do you say that I am? That kind of question provokes, my friends, I think a much more deeper, critical response. Because Jesus says to you and I, who do they say that I am? Who do they out there say that I am? And we respond. (laughs) And then Jesus says to us, who do you say that I am? 
And I dare say there's a lingering third question, is there not? If he asks, who do they say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Does he not also ask us, in the quiet of our heart, who are you in the light of how you responded to that question, who do you say that I am? Who are you in the light of who I am? A third question that has us going even deeper into our relationship with Christ and how we might respond to our relationship in Christ. Okay, so there's this ethical, moral dimension that Matthew wants us to see in his gospel. Now, second, the kingdom of heaven is also ecclesial, which is just a fancy word to say that it is about the church, right? So the kingdom of heaven is also ecclesial in that its saving power is made present in the world through the church, right? It is noteworthy that the gospel of Matthew, which stresses the importance of the kingdom more than any other, is likewise the only gospel to make explicit reference to the church in chapters 16 and 18, right? Where the authority to bind and loose in the kingdom of heaven is given to Peter, who is made the kingdom's chief steward and the guardian of its keys. Remember what we have talked about, huh? How similar royal authority was conferred upon the apostles as a group in chapter 18. So sent forth by Jesus, they, that is the apostles, extend the kingdom of heaven through their preaching and through their sacramental actions. Now, third, and certainly a point not to be lost on us, is that the kingdom of heaven will also have an eschatological fulfillment in the future. Say that word three times fast, eschatological. Right? That is just a fancy word that means the end the end times, that which points to the end, okay? And by this, the church means that Matthew wants us to see that its presence in the world through the church is therefore a prelude to its full and final manifestation at the end of time. So in this sense, the coming of the kingdom, as we are reminded in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, awaits the return of of Christ in glory. And my dear friends, this is the great hope of the church here on earth. For that she prays to the Father. When as we read in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 and following, when at last the Son of Man comes, he will send the righteous and the wicked their separate ways, and the everlasting inheritance of the kingdom will be given to the faithful. Now, if you were to go to the opening verses of the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, if you really want to get to the heart of what Matthew's all about, all you have to do is go to the first verse. Every great author is going to, from the outset, establish what he wants to talk about, what his book is about, right? Well, Matthew was no different. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he sets out to establish its theme. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you're probably thinking to yourself right now, well, Joe, doesn't he talk about some genealogy, a genealogy that is tied to Abraham and David? What's all the good news about? I've never really understood that anyways. Well, 
consider what I just said about the kingdom of heaven being its central theme. What does Matthew say in the opening verse? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the kingdom of heaven that Christ has come to establish is but a fulfillment of the Old Testament. We have to remember that Matthew is writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, which means his audience, Matthew's immediate audience, is well-versed in the Old Testament. And so what Matthew sets out to do is to show his audience that, yeah, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment to that prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. And of all those great covenants that you are so familiar with, I mean, consider, for example, God's covenant with David in, in 2 Samuel 7 verses 10 and following, where he talks about establishing a what forever? A kingdom forever. Isn't that interesting? And that kingdom will be a dynasty that will last for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. No, forever. So when Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, what he wants us to see is that Jesus Christ in his pedigree is the son of David. Incidentally, only Matthew references Jesus as the son of David as often as eight times. In the other Gospels, you get Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, Lamb of God. No, Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of David because he wants his audience to see that the Prince of Peace, that the Lamb of God is the son of David, who's come to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth whose humanity and divinity pass over into the sacramental mysteries of the church. This is what Matthew wants us to see. This is what he desires. You know, Matthew frequently quotes Old Testament passages to establish our Lord's credentials as the Messiah. What's really interesting about this is how Jesus and Matthew often allude to the Old Testament in more subtle ways by drawing comparisons between ancient persons, places, and events, and Jesus himself. This is what we call typology, right? A typological reading of the Old Testament is attuned to distinctive rhymes in salvation history where God acts in similar or, we could say, typical ways each time he reveals himself and delivers his people. In other words, we could say that the Father teaches us about himself through the use of things and events long familiar in the minds of the people. In short, my friends, God uses old truths to instruct us about new ones. I mean, Jesus and Matthew look back on several Old Testament figures and institutions to bring the surpassing glory of Christ and the new covenant into focus. Jesus calls himself a new Moses, right? Who was Moses? But the supreme lawgiver of the old covenant. Moses prefigured Christ. Why? Because what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount but gives the new law on a mountain? Jesus also reenacts experiences from Moses' infancy and the prophet's 40 days of fasting and solitude. Did not Moses bear witness to Jesus' great glory at the transfiguration? 
where Jesus is showcased as the prophet like Moses. So Jesus is seen as a new Moses. He's also seen as a new David and a new temple, a new Israel, a new Solomon, a new Jonah, all in the gospel of Matthew. Why? Because Matthew wants us to see that again, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. And just not fulfillment, but as he fulfills, he also transforms. And as he transforms, he also perfects. So these are matters that we should pay close attention to when we are breaking open the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, so the kingdom of God, the son of David, understanding that Matthew was writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, which meant there was going to be a rich allusion to the Old Testament. That is so essential to understanding the Gospel of Matthew for what it is. And then also, as we talked about, those three central themes to the kingdom of, of heaven. That there is an ethical theme, an ecclesial theme, and an eschatological theme. That in many ways separates the Gospel of Matthew, not only from John, but I dare say also the Synoptic Gospels. Certainly, Mark and Luke tap into some of what Matthew talks about because their Gospels are patterned from it, but there are those distinctions to be had. All right, that being said, what about St. John? Well, let us first say this, that the fourth gospel is a book of extraordinary beauty and extraordinary artistry. <laughs> I mean, the richness of its expression, the richness of its imagery has really made it not only the most celebrated gospel by many accounts, but the most celebrated work in Christian history. He's regarded, that is, John as the eagle because he soars. Now, what are its key themes? Well, the divine family and the human family. So what do we mean by the divine family? Well, if you carefully go through the Gospel of John, you see that the divine family of God revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit is really the towering mystery of the fourth Gospel. The Father initiates this Revelation, how but by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a man, right? John chapter 1, verse 14, and the flesh dwelt among us. The Greek there is tabernaculus. Literally, he pitched his tent. And so through him, through Jesus Christ, we learn that the Father loves the Son, nourishes him with his will, and entrusts him with the responsibilities of judging and giving life to the world. And so the divine unity between the Father and the Son is unlike any known on earth. And Christ now, for his part, in the Gospel of John, shows us the heart of his Father by imitating his Father's works. Kind of the theme within the theme, if you will, to the Gospel of John. As he speaks to the Father's words and as he returns to the Father's love. So the essence of Jesus' divine sonship is thus expressed through a lifetime of pleasing and honoring his Father. What's more, we know from John chapter 14, verse 26, and John chapter 15, verse 26, that the Spirit, too, is sent into the world by the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit's mission is to continue the ministry of Jesus, always teaching the truth announcing things to come 
John 16 verse 13 says, and filling the hearts and lives of believers with his presence. Here I might pause and consider some of our Lord's very specific words. I think we find them in John chapter 3, when he says, I give you the Holy Spirit. I give to you all that is the love of God. Remember, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about the love that is shared between the Father and the Son. How might we best define the Trinity? Well, I like to simplify it. Love given, love received, love shared. The Father gives, the Son receives, and the Holy Spirit is, yes, the fellowship shared between the Father and the Son. The love expressed between the Father and the Son. This is what is given to us, my friends, such an extraordinary gift. And I highlight the fact that Jesus says, I don't portion out, because I think we have a tendency today to portion out things, right? I I know at least I do. (laughs) I portion out my money a little bit for you and a little bit for you. I portion out my time a little bit for you and a, a little bit for you. I portion out my work. And, and all of that is all fine and well. To some degree, it's prudent, right? But that's what makes God altogether different. That's why we're not God. Because God can give all of himself to everyone all the time, anywhere and everywhere. That's the great gift of God. And certainly one of the great mysteries of God. So here we might think of it in the context of what is limitless. Because the moment I portion something out, it is what but limited, right? But what Jesus wants us to see in John chapter 3 is that by giving the Holy Spirit to you and I, what he's giving to us is not only a person, but a person who is unlimited in what he can do for you and I. I often go to the analogy once shared by a priest friend of mine. You know, I love going to the beach. And there's something about just being on the beach that has always been so, oh, I don't know, transformative for me. And one can fathom that although there are millions and millions and billions and billions of grains of sand in the world, it would take a thousand lifetimes of maybe a thousand different people to count all the grains of sand, but one can fathom that you can do it, right? Because why? Well, sand is limited. At first glance, it might seem that you could never actually count all the grains of sand in the world, but you technically could, right? Because it is limited. What do they say? That water makes up 80% of our planet? That's a whole lot of water, my friends. (laughs) And yet, it is still limited. It is still limited. You see, my friends, all of those grains of sand are but a drop in the bucket. All of that water is but a teardrop to God's unlimited, limitless gift of the Holy Spirit. Limitless love. And that's not to say that uh, this whole discussion is at the exclusion of God's truth. No. God's truth is a doorway, a pathway, an avenue to walk down so as to better understand this God who we are talking about right now, who is love. More recently, 
I have been wondering if we need to be reminded that we are loved by a God who is unlimited in how he loves. And here, of course, I'm speaking to his merciful love. We need to be reminded that God says to you and I each and every day that I created you because only you can bring glory to me as you can bring glory to me because you are altogether unique. You are altogether different. We so often put this in the context of snowflakes. There's no one snowflake that is the same. Fine and well, my friends. Here we are talking about persons, human beings, who have the capacity to reason. And God says to you, I have a very specific plan and enter into the dynamism of what that plan is for you. John certainly would have us see that as he encourages us to reflect into the divine family and what the divine family is all about. Now, John also wants us thinking about the human family for sure, because it is everywhere in this gospel. In fact, the heart of Jesus' message is that the children of men are invited to become what in verse 12? But the children of God. We read in chapter 3, verse 5, that this new life in Christ begins with a spiritual rebirth and baptism and is sustained as the Father nourishes us, nourishes us with the divine food and drink of the Eucharist. What else do you have in any functioning family? But in education and truth, certainly we see that everywhere in this gospel, the education of truth. John wants us to know that we are not left as orphans after Christ returns to the Father because he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit where we cry, Abba, Father. Now the gospel of John, as he focuses in on the divine family and the human family, also has for us what is called the book of signs. Earlier I was speaking to how John is a theologian. He soars. He soars in elevation, yes, but in a paradox, that elevation is one that has us going deep, right? Deep into the inner recesses of how God reveals himself. You don't have to go too far to, to see this. I mean, in the opening verses of the Gospel of John, he has us thinking about what he wants us thinking about. Just as I was talking about in the Gospel of Matthew, every good author will establish his central theme. Well, John does the same. Because in the opening chapter, what is he talking about? Well, let's go to that first verse. We talked about the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. We read in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What is John Wattis thinking about here? But creation, right? In the beginning, the Greek there uh, that John employs is iniarche. Iniarche translates the besherif in the Hebrew for, for beginning. Genesis. Genesis means beginning. I just spent the last year on Mondays and Tuesdays <laughs> talking about the book of Genesis. The Gospel of John wants us thinking about just not the book of Genesis, but creation in the beginning. And so in the opening chapter of his Gospel, he's talking about light, darkness, days, 
So specific is he to the significance of days that if you were to really roll up your sleeves with the Gospel of John, and that's what you have to do when you read John, you come to discover that he's also focusing on the importance of the seventh day in the new covenant. What do I mean? Well, if you were to go to John chapter 1, verse 29, you read him using the phrase for the first time, the next day. You see him using it again in verse 35, the next day. You see him using it a third time in verse 43, the next day. And then in John chapter 2, verse 1, we read, on the third day. So why would John be so cryptic in his language of using days? Or is he just talking about the sequence of days? There's never nothing simple about the Gospel of John. No, John wants us to see that when he employs that phrase, the next day, in verse 29, we are now what in the second day. And then in verse 35, the third day, in verse 43, the fourth day. And so when we come to John chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, on the third day, he's talking about on the third day from the fourth day. Why be so cryptic? Well, because he wants us to see that there's great significance on the seventh day that is tied to the third day, which ultimately is the day of resurrection. Ask any Christian what they think about when they hear the third day, and they're going to talk about the resurrection. But John strategically inserts it into this sequence found on the seventh day because he wants us to see, well, probably two things. First, that on the seventh day, there's a great miracle. And of course, John wants us to see that as the Eucharist. But also, on the seventh day, he transforms creation. So that's the kind of thing that, that is going on with the Gospel of John. And of course, the great sign on the seventh day, which was the third day, was the miracle at the wedding feast of Cana where he changed the water into the wine, which, of course, anticipates, foreshadows the transubstantiation of the wine into the blood of Christ, as he would speak to it in John chapter 6. Amen? Amen. All right, there you have it, my friends. Oh, a few musings, if you will, on what separates the Gospel of Matthew from the Gospel of John. Okay, there's so much more that could be had, but at the very least, I think we have a working sense of what is just not going on in these two Gospels, but yeah, there's something to be said about, well, all four Gospels, and how all four Gospels are reaching to the four corners of the earth. That is how the Church Fathers spoke to it, and how we are called to appreciate the uniqueness of each Gospel. Earlier, I was talking about the uniqueness of you and I. Well, all that is created has something unique to its expression, and that certainly includes the inspired Word of God. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.